You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Steamheart. Chapter 11 Amidst the Wolves From the Journal of Annie Oakley, District of Columbia, April 15th, 1883. I was up before dawn to watch the sunrise over the city. I climbed out of the window and edged along a narrow, creaking balcony that was more decorative than functional to perch myself in a comfortable spot on the roof. It got me very reflective being up there, uncertain if I would ever see Washington again. I was born Phoebe Ann Mosey, though everybody called me Annie immediately, on August 13th, 1860, in a little log cabin in Dark County, Ohio. A tiny place called Woodland, which lived up to its name. My parents had moved out there five years prior, after their Pennsylvania Inn burned down. They wanted, like most frontiersmen, to measure out a new way of life and establish prospects and property for themselves, living independently and calling no man master. We worked the land and grew what we needed to eat, selling everything extra. My sisters would spend their days helping my mother or playing with their dolls around the house, never straying far, but at the earliest age, I loved roaming the woods and fields with my father, setting traps for rabbits, squirrels, and birds. Both my parents were Quakers, which meant they abhorred violence. So I, I dread to think what they would say about my profession these last six years or so. That being said, my father had fought the British Empire in the Second War of Independence, despite his beliefs. We had a 50 caliber muzzle-loading rifle to hunt with and defend ourselves. Over the years, I grew to respect that rifle and what it could bring us. When I was five years old, one particularly lean winter, my father journeyed to the nearby town to sell our grain and get supplies. As the first snowflakes fell, I recall thinking how pretty the land would be soon. But as the blizzard set in, my sisters, Mary Jane, Lydia, Elizabeth, Sarah Ellen, my brother John, and little baby Hulda, all hung by the windows, watching the road, awaiting his return. When we saw his cart, Pushing through the spiraling whiteness, there was, there was relief among us all. But it was short-lived. We brought him in, fetching hot coffee and soup as he took to his bed. His poor hands were near frozen solid. So I blew upon them as Sarah Ellen fed him. He lay at death's door for weeks. Until finally, the angels took him. 
and we were alone in the woods. No daddy to forge a path ahead for us. Once the winter was done, my mother quickly moved us to a smaller, rented cabin to make ends meet, taking a job as a nurse. It didn't bring in enough to feed that many mouths, so we sold our beloved cow, Pink, a parting that brought further tears. These were hard, hard times, but every night I recall no matter how tired we were, mother would wash our hands and feet, brushing and braiding our hair into pigtails, then take John and little Huldy on our knee, and we would all pray for God to watch over us. My sister, Mary Jane, died of tuberculosis in 67, so we resolved to pray twice as hard. Not too long after that, I was sitting out on the front porch, tired and aching from my long walk to the various traps I'd set, which hadn't yielded nearly enough critters to eat and sell, when my eyes fell upon a squirrel, sat munching on a nut about twenty yards away on the fence. I looked at him, and he looked at me. I'm going to shoot you now, Mr. Squirrel. I said aloud, our tummies are aching with hunger, and there's good eating on you. He shrugged and continued his meal, as though to say, you can try. I went inside and found, propped in the corner, my father's rifle. It was longer than I was tall, and I had some difficulty getting the shot and powder inside, and even more working the ramrod purely going on the memory of what he had shown me years before. My mother was at work, and nobody else was around, so I tottered back to the front porch, holding this heavy prize, rested it on the railing, and took aim. It wasn't difficult at all. The holding of it was, but not the pointing and shooting. I did not know, of course how much surplus powder I'd thrown in there. So, when it went off, it went off big time. Throwing me backwards with violent force, the cracking sound echoing around the nearby woods and sending startled birds from the trees. The squirrel lay dead, plenty of meat on its bones. Considering the circumstances, this might have been the greatest shot of my life. And so began many years of my hunting for my family. My mother was not pleased with the idea, but she soon accepted it when what I was selling brought in enough to chip away at the bills. I dealt game to Greenville shopkeepers like the Katzenberger brothers, who shipped them out to hotels in Cincinnati. Then, when I realized what they were doing, I cut out the middleman and went straight to the hotels of Northern Ohio dragging along a little cart of plump birds and brokering deals with them one-on-one. Being paid a decent amount for doing what I did best felt spectacular. But it wasn't a straight road. 
I had stops and starts and and my mother went through periods of worry about my safety out there in the wild. And the daunting prospect of having a girl who sought a life of hunting rather than more ladylike pursuits. When she remarried and gave birth to baby Emily, she decided enough was enough with this wayward, rebellious nine-year-old daughter. Sarah Ellen and I were sent to the Dark County Infirmary to learn needlework and decorating, as well as caring for the other occupants. It was a plain and regimented place, and though I took to sewing with gusto, I felt trapped within its flat stone walls, longing for my forest, crying into the night. So, when a young fellow named Josiah Slade came by the infirmary asking for a girl who could help his wife care for her new baby in their farmhouse surrounded by the woods, (laughs) of course I jumped at the chance to be back somewhere that was a close approximation to home. I bid my sister farewell for now and traveled with Josiah on his cart to the Slade homestead. As I laid eyes on Judith, the wife and mother, my heart began to falter. She did not look upon me warmly, nor was I welcomed. I was instead little more than an indentured servant. From the first morning onward, my routine was set. Get up at four in the morning while it was still dark, milk the cow, which was nowhere near as personable as Pink had been, Fix the slate's breakfast, which I was never thanked for. Wash the dishes, and woe betide me if I chipped one. Skim the milk, feed the calves, pigs, and chickens. Pump the water for both livestock and humans. I believe I fell somewhere in the middle in the eyes of the slades. Weed the garden until my hands bled. I would then pick berries with shaking fingers until it was too dark to see. Fix everybody's supper and rock the baby to sleep by which point it was an ordeal in itself not to drift off first. Needless to say, after all this, there wasn't a moment in the day for me to hunt like they promised. The infant, little Gertrude, was the only member of our household who looked upon me with uncontemptuous eyes. I felt sorry for the poor thing having a mother as dried up and venomous as Judith. One cold winter night, when I had nearly broken myself pumping half-frozen water and foraging for non-existent berries, I did indeed fall asleep at my post, slumped over Gertrude's crib. I awoke to Mrs. Slade grabbing my arm and hauling me to the front door, where she tossed me outside into the snow. What struck me harder than even her reprimanding hand was how the lights went out just as the door was shut. It was black as pitch out there, and the dress I had sewn myself in summer was not going to keep me alive. I breathed steam and put my head in my hands, sobbing my heart out. The hot tears trickling over my trembling fingers as the true bite of the wind began to set in. Now I was really afraid. 
How had our Heavenly Father cast me down like this amidst the wolves? Because that's what this family were. Animals. Bleeding me dry. Had I been bad? Was it the hunting? Should I have observed my station as a girl? No. My daddy was taken from me before I had even touched a gun. Why then? None of this made any sense. What could a person possibly do to deserve this treatment? What could I do to make it all stop? I clasped my hands together and tried to pray for mercy, but my lips would not move and no sound would come out. So I prayed within my mind. As I did so, a light drifted across my face and Josiah approached with a lantern. He scowled at me, threw open the front door, and kicked me inside, where I lay cowering by the fire, flooded with the relief at the warmth I could feel again. I could feel again. He grabbed me roughly, and half dragged, half threw me into a corner, so I would be out of their sight. I could still remember those gripping, vicious hands of his, and the thought of them terrifies me. Years went by, and things did not improve. In fact, the beatings got worse. I wrote to my mother often, using what little schooling I'd had, since the slaves never got me educated like they promised. But... I was not permitted to see the letters she wrote back. Judith would simply read them to me aloud, and I soon learned the rough templates she would lazily assemble in her mind as her eyes stared straight through the paper, never scanning lettering. I wasn't stupid. One morning, when little Gertrude toddled off outside and Judith minded her, I was washing dishes very aware of the most recent letter from my mother, sat on the side of the breakfast table. It had been a mix of templates one, three, and six when she had read it last night. Me and your new stepfather are doing very well. Your brother is doing very well as a hunter, and the amount we are being sent by the Slades is helping us to get by very well. You must work just as hard over the coming spring. Listening to the sound of Mrs. Slade's voice outside to gauge her distance, I lowered the dish I was holding and scurried over to see what I could read. I saw words like, Surely Annie is working hard enough to earn a little more, and if she isn't, may I ask that you send her back? And that was it for me. I decided with a powerful clarity that I had had just about enough of these lying, exploitative wolves as I could take. Four days later, I came in from feeding the livestock and called out, only to get silence back and a faint mooing from across the yard. They had departed for town while I worked, 
No note was left, but I had seen this happen recently, and often enough to know that I had about 70 minutes before they were back. I looked across at the iron and the basket of crumpled clothes, which were my next task, and shook my head. I went to my possessions over in the corner by my cot bed. I knew where they kept their money, but I was not a thief. I had 48 cents squirreled away. That, my clothes, and a little bread was all that I took with me as I stepped outside into the warm air and closed and locked the door of the farmhouse. The nearest station was two miles south, and by the time I got there along the road, the Slades would be riding right past me. No, that couldn't happen. I would not feel Josiah's hands again. I would scream blue murder if he made a move. I looked at the track, which led down to the road, and then headed instead towards the trees. I would walk through the forest. This was my domain, after all. I'd been homesick most of all for the fairy places. The green moss, the wild flowers, the big toadstools, the bees, the baby rabbits, the quail, and the squirrels. It was glorious to be back among them, and I breathed in the heady scents and felt the edges of a freedom I still could not declare. It was heavy going, and the afternoon was getting on when I finally emerged in the field across from the station. I crept down there, attempting to make my climb up onto the platform look as natural as can be. There weren't many people stood around as the next train approached, but most of them took no notice. The sun beat down and the crickets chirped, and I looked across to see Josiah and Judith walking not a hundred yards away, clutching Gertrude's chubby hand as she grizzled and clearly searching about. They weren't as stupid as I'd always thought, and had discovered my absence and made a beeline for the only place I can escape from them at speed. My heart pounded as the train arrived, a green locomotive drawing four faded carriages. A tall old gentleman in a wide-brimmed hat and a long, smart-looking coat stood to my right. He spotted me glancing nervously down the platform and his gaze was drawn to the wolves. His eyes narrowed as he looked back down, then gestured to me to board the train. He had seen my fear, and as I moved, he matched my steps, shielding me from view with the drape of that coat. I sat across from him, the smell of the wooden benches, worn down with years of passengers, filling my nostrils. He nodded downwards urgently, and I dropped below the line of the carriage windows as the wolves prowled past. Tickets, please, ladies and gentlemen. My breath stopped. The conductor approached and loomed overhead. I, I need to buy a ticket to North Star, sir. That will be 85 cents then, missy. I fumbled for what I knew wasn't enough. 
I've, uh, I've got 48, but do you, do you by chance have a daughter of about my age, sir? I can give you my other dress for the balance. We don't take dresses as legal tender, young lady. So either find 37 more cents or get off this train. Not far away, the wolves were approaching their cart, still glancing into the windows of the train's final carriage to see if I was on board. My heart thumped and my stomach tied itself in knots. I couldn't imagine going back to live there with them. I knew it would be my end. The old man showed the conductor his ticket and gave him three quarters and a dime. Here. I'm her grandfather. She likes to pay for everything herself. I'll cover this one, sweetheart. He smiled at me, and I gaped back. The conductor frowned, tore off the ticket, and placed it in my little hand. Have a good journey, he muttered and moved off down the train as the whistle sounded. And we began, mercifully, to move. I gazed at the old man as the station drew past and we crossed the fields. You... you saved my life. Sir, I can never repay you for that. Looked like you were in a bit of a fix there, he said amiably. Besides which, you really do remind me of my granddaughter. Does she like dresses? I asked, eagerly delving into my little pack. He smiled sadly, a tear in his eye. She did. And I think my heart just about broke in too. We shared a deeply pleasant conversation on that journey back to North Star, where we parted company and I began my long trek back to my mother's house. I would meet the wolves again one last time when I returned to the Dark County Infirmary to live with Samuel and Nancy Eddington, the far kinder proprietors, who asked me about the new scars on my arms and shoulders and were horrified to learn their origin. Mr. Slade came to bring me back and was driven from our door by Samuel and his son. Josiah and Judith Slade are fictional names. I will not commit the real ones to history, as it would be too much of a service to these wretched souls. This protection brought me, for the first time in years, a measure of safety and the sense that someone was fighting in my corner. But I never saw the kindly old gentleman from the train again, and I do not know whether he lived to see this nation transformed. What I do know, however, is that I will go to my grave with the deepest unending gratitude for the man who bought me the rest of my life. For 85 cents. Jonathan Oakley. Butler awoke not long after me and climbed out. 
bringing coffee so we could watch the sunrise together. I cuddled closer to this good, good man and thanked God for listening. You have been listening to episode 11 of Steamheart, Amidst the Wolves, written and directed by Alexander Shaw, Annie Oakley, performed by Loretta Saylor, Conductor and Old Man, performed by Alexander Shaw, Where the West Begins, composed by Ferenc Hegedus of Shockwave Sound, Ever Mindful and Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes provided by Tabletop Audio. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Matthew A. Seibert, Benjamin Biddle, Joseph Gluck, Sean Doran, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dajla, and Lorraine Chisholm. Nearly everything you just heard actually happened in our world too. I took some creative leaps in the writing for Tension, and the notion that Oakley gained her name from the kindly old man is a myth, but the old man was real. And so was Annie.